Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. I am honored by the presence of our guest today. Of course, joining me are Sabrina. Hello, Sabrina. Hello, Melissa. And also, once again, my writing partner and man about town, Larry Amaros. Hello, hello, hello. My guest today, Lisa Birnbach. I don't even know how to intro you. <laughs> Author, TV host, TV producer, lifestyle guru. Well, yes. Yeah, consultant. Oh, hand model. We forgot about that, of course. Mm. And a podcaster. Well, you know, that resume sounds like a sad, sad person who got less and less and less <laughs> successful and then thought, oh, I have a microphone at home. I'll just uh, be a podcaster. But, you know, I guess I'm best known for writing a couple of books. Which we're going to get to. Right. But I'll tell you this. I have written 22 or 23 books. Most people think I've written one or maybe two books. And when I was on my book tour for True Prep, which was... The follow-up to the Preppy Handbook. The follow-up to the Preppy Handbook. So it was, in many people's minds, the second book I'd ever written. People (laughs) said, what have you done between the Preppy Handbook in 1980 and now? And I would tell them, oh, I wrote for this magazine. I was an editor. I worked on TV. I was a correspondent on CBS, blah, blah, blah. And I would watch them actually fall asleep during the resume. <laughs> they would, they, their eyes would roll back in their heads and they just couldn't take it. So I tried something out. I said, well, I was in rehab. Oh, were oh. you? They were so excited. I said I was in rehab for 30 years, and now I wrote a second book. Was I in rehab? No. Then I tried a different one. I said, well, you know, I was I was in jail. And, oh, my God. You know, so I am going to say I'm a jailbird. I'm an ex-felon. Yeah, that might make me more interesting. When I was looking at everything, it dawned on me. You were the original influencer. In a way, I was an influencer. No, but before. like the OG, like the original influencer. Yes. Okay, let's say that. Let's say that. I mean, you've done so much, you make me look lazy. Um, <laughs> I wanted to start with your podcast, though. Oh, okay. So um, it's called Five Things. Five Things That Make Life Better. Right. I never thought of myself as a self-help type. And I don't think that shoe really fits. However, I was so disappointed and slash depressed and slash in a bad mood after Donald Trump became president. Oh, I've been in a bad mood for years, long before that. Yeah, well, yes, Yes, and you have your reasons, and I share some of those reasons because (laughs) I knew your mom and I loved her. I was so disappointed about Trump that I was looking for a way to not feel suicidal every day. And I don't mean suicidal. I don't mean to make light of it, but I just felt so morose. So I thought, well, if I can come up, it's a very classic gratitude exercise. If I can 
come up with five things that I don't hate that cheer me up. Maybe I'll pull myself through this administration. <laughs> Over time, I got to find a pace. I started to have guests. The guests have to. It's a requirement. They have to do their five things. And it's become a very uplifting show for people. It's hard to be uplifting right now. I mean, this is a dark time. And I'm very concerned about everybody's safety. I wear a mask every place I go because I live in New York and I don't go many places actually. And it's been very helpful. I get feedback saying that people are uplifted by it and they enjoy it. And then when I say I love oatly milk, other people say I love oatly milk. I don't have any sponsors. So everything I like is pure. Pure you. Pure me. I'm not influenced by anyone or anything. Not a dime. So what are five things? I know this is like such the obvious question. What are five things we should know about you? Oh, five things that you should know. Give me at least two deep and three shallow. Okay. How's that? Okay, that's good. Staying in my personal wheelhouse of shallow. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) you want shallow first? Let's do deep and then shallow. Okay. Two deep things that no one knows about me or that you don't know about me. Um, I really care about sharing the bounty of the fortunate with the less fortunate. I care about it deeply. I am offended by a government that doesn't want to look after the people who are deprived of their rights, are deprived of their comfort and... I spend a lot of time getting involved in online and in-person foundations for that purpose. Another thing, if Joe Biden were to pick this glass of water to be his running mate, I would be excited about voting for them. If he were to pick Tammy Duckworth or Kamala Harris or... I guess it's going to be a woman, so or Elizabeth Warren, or Stacey Abrams, or any of us, or, you know, it doesn't matter to me. He is going to have the same good team of people around him that Bernie Sanders would have, that mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren would have, that Pete Buttigieg would have. Good people, many of them from the Obama administration, many of them who have experience in pandemic control, in health, people who believe in science and global warming. So that's my number two. Well, it's funny that you say that because I remember watching the last couple debates Mm -hmm. and I was really surprised that no one thought to say, if I am president, I would be honored to have every single one of you in my administration. Yes, exactly. But I don't know why anyone didn't say that. That seemed like such an easy line. So obvious. But when have you heard any of the politicians say that? Honestly. No, I said we haven't. That's why I was so surprised with that whole stage full of people. And very talented people. And very talented people. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Friedman, who writes for the New York Times, said... I'm a fan. Yeah, he said it's what Lincoln did. He coalesced his team of rivals and put them in his administration. It could easily be done. I love the fact that we just 
said Thomas Friedman and you reference Doris Kearns Goodwin, or as I like to call her, my girl D. Oh, really? <laughs> She's not it. I hate your girl D. <laughs> um, okay, give me some shallow. I begin every day playing word games on my phone. Which ones? Well, I start with the spelling bee on the New York Times. Then I go to the easy, I mean, I'm embarrassed to do it, but the very easy crossword puzzle, the fast one that should take about a minute or less. Then I do the daily New York Times crossword puzzle. In pencil or ink? Online. Oh, yeah, no more pencil or ink. That's right. So I want to go back to you being the original influencer. Okay. But we only got two shallows. Oh, we only oh, got two shallows. two shallows. No, that was two. I need a third. Okay. Um, I went to a nutritionist last year who told me I was allergic to dairy, which upset me very much. And so I've avoided dairy, except I use butter like it's going out of style. So I love butter. As one of my kids said when she was very little, butter is my boyfriend. <laughs> so I can't live without butter. And um, I drink a lot of rosé. I guess that would be number three. Rosé all day. Rosé all day. Gotta love that. Yeah. I know you're so probably sick after 30 years of talking about the preppy handbook, but it was truly groundbreaking. It was. It created a fashion revolution, a lifestyle revolution. And when I was thinking about this last night, you actually were the first one to figure out that Locust Valley Lockjaw and TMJ are different things. They are different things because one is good and one is bad. Exactly. But similar. But similar. No one's ever asked me that in all these years. Yeah. So the Lockjaw. Uh, the Logan Valley Lockjaw. The Lockjaw is like this. Yes. The TMJ is when it clicks, <laughs> which I also have. <laughs> but it can lock, too. And it can lock. And it makes it painful to talk moving your jaw. And you can't eat things like deli when you have a lockjaw because it just doesn't go. Right. It would be it would be gross. Who knew you were scientifically so ahead of your time? I know. Nobody gave me credit for that. But what was your inspiration for writing the preppy handbook? So I was writing for the Village Voice and I loved writing for this alternative paper because it forced me to go to Greenwich Village every day. I felt hip. I was not hip. I was the one woman on the staff who shaved her legs and, you know, certainly showered every day. And it was this group of old hippies who put out this weekly legendary newspaper. And, it, and I believed in the mission of alternative newspapers, you know, because right. they reported on stuff that you couldn't see in the New York Times or the Post or the News. And they had great ads for real estate in the back and for massages. So I was there and I had a column with my boss, Howard Smith, and we kind of started the craze for light bulb jokes. Really? We didn't say the first one or invent them, but we started a contest for weeks and weeks and weeks. Submit the best jokes. Uh, how many lesbians does it take? You know, all of one, them. One and it's not funny. Correct. I believe I wrote that joke, but I can't prove it. Anyway, so there were lots of them. 
And my boss and I went to a meeting at Workman Publishing to pitch a book about light bulb jokes. And while I was there, an editor pulled me aside and said, we have this book about preppies and we need an editor and a writer. Would you be interested? It was like Lana Turner at the drugstore. I mean, it was, why me? I guess because yeah. I was wearing a black Lacoste shirt. So that's how that happened. And what they wanted was a book about the stuff, about the gingham and the madras and the duck decoys and all the racket sports and a woody station wagon and so on. And I felt that you can't talk about the stuff until you talk about the culture underneath it. And it was funny that I could do that. I had some help with some other writers, but you know, it's sort of being a Jewish woman from New York or then a Jewish girl, you're inside out. You have a foot in and a foot out. And that really helped me have some perspective on that world because that world used to be very restricted. In your wildest imagination, did you even think like years later, we'd still be talking about all of this? Honestly. 100,000% no. And in fact, when I finally turned in the book and did all the pictures and returned all the clothes that I'd borrowed, I asked my publisher, do I need to set aside some time to go on a tour or something? I was very shy still, uh, very shy. Asked my orthodontist. And <laughs> my publisher almost did a spit take. I mean, they were going to print 5,000 books. It was not their big book. They had a very low financial risk. They invested, I think, $7,500 in the making of it. That included my advance and what I had to pay the photographer and the artist. So, you know, if it didn't do well, it wasn't going to do well. So, no, no. The answer is no, Sabrina. Okay, okay. It, it was a sensation and actually became like a Bible. So I remember being in seventh grade, sitting in the library at the Marlboro School in Los Angeles. Girls school. Girls school, uber prep. When we did our interview, my parents walked in and said, she's Jewish and we're in the entertainment business that checks two boxes with one kid. So <laughs> <laughs> we give you some distribution here exactly. and diversity. Yeah. And then my mother had taken my copy of the preppy handbook and gone through the schools list and circled schools and marked them saying, question mark, maybe she circled choke. Wow. Wow. Andover and Exeter. And there were little squiggles saying, what do you think? Aww. I mean, it became literally the Bible. Did the wasp culture realize you were kind of making fun of them? Or did they go, oh, she's one of ours? Uh, there were both responses. I would say that the intention of the book was to poke fun in a gentle way to this culture that had not been delineated. Certainly, you could read about wasps and preppies in the fiction of John Updike or John Cheever or mm -hmm. many others, but not, this is what we do. This is why we do it. This is the history behind this. This is where you buy this thing. So you can be like us never. And again, the first printing was very small. 
we thought maybe a few choke graduates and over graduates, Princeton people, maybe a few of them would buy the book and enjoy the book. We had no idea, no idea that it would create the excitement it did. And honestly, there were places like um, outside of Chicago in Lake Forest, someone said, you know, you're really Jewish, right? And I said, absolutely. You know, I never tried to hide it. And I think that was all she had to say to suggest that this wasn't up to you and you don't belong here sort of thing. But at the same time, people who were not preppy, and in 1980, I had to explain the first question everyone asked me was, Lisa, what is a preppy? But what made the book so successful were the non-preppies who thought, okay, I'm going to get a station wagon, I'm going to take up tennis, I'm going to buy a white-collared shirt, and I am going to move up in the world. And I think people took it as a self-help primer to raise themselves up to the next level. I mean, I don't think there would be Oprah in a way if it weren't for a book like that. And, you know, Oprah interviewed me when the Preppy Handbook came out. She was a local talk show host in Baltimore. She was very good. She was really into it. And not to say I made Oprah. I'm not saying that at all. Say it, girl. Say it. Say it. Say it all right. with pride. Okay. You did. You, you did. did it. I did it. Not everyone can say that. <laughs> That's right. I made Tom Snyder. <laughs> you did. I want to put that out there. You know what? I loved Tom Snyder's show. Me too. Oh there was God. something so wrong about it that it was right. <laughs> and the lowest energy of any Lowest show. energy. You started a fashion revolution. You did. Let me tell you, I remember being in school and... Were you in the fourth grade, Sabrina? Because Melissa was in the seventh. Perhaps. Oh, she's going to be mad. But anyway, perhaps. We're in the, we're the same age. She was in the seventh, too. Yep. Okay, seventh grade. Okay. <laughs> but being preppy was the thing. There was a certain prestige. So, of course, you wanted to wear your little pink or your green and your, your, your oh, my God, we loved it. The IZODs, the, all that stuff. So there was that association and that elevation of class, or at least that's what I remember in going to school. I have no idea why, but I do know this. I live in New York. I did and I do. And I live in a democratic bubble. And once I got out of New York City, I found out, oh, Ronald Reagan could win this election. Oh, Ronald Reagan did win this election. Oh, people are starting to like nice things because they didn't in the 70s. They like, you know, torn shirts, torn jeans and stuff. And now suddenly people were saying, not I have to get my car, it's down the street. I started to hear, oh, I have to get my Beamer, it's down the street. And then you started hearing people really bragging about money. And I was trying very hard, and you can help me do this too, in making it very understood that preppy isn't about money. Preppies are cheap. Yeah, first of all, true upper class does not, A, they're cheap, and you never discuss money. Ever. Ever. That's Ever. number one. Number two, if you can reuse, re-gift, there's a very fancy woman I learned about 
who's been married many times, at this point in her life, she will only marry someone with the same last initial because she cannot have her silver re-engraved again. I, by the way, unfortunately, understand that. I understand Smart that. Cookie. Absolutely. I will it's not. It's practical. I am never changing a monogram again, ever. It's practical. And how about this? How about all the people who go summer in grandma's mildewy, moldy country house because they do not want to pay or buy their own house. But it's also, which I find in my lexicon, it's what we do. Yes, it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. So when people say, oh, you have to be rich, that is not the case. And one other exhibit I present to the court, the wrap skirt. Hello, it is the most economical, most thoughtful invention, underappreciated. A wrap skirt, you can gain weight, you can lose weight. It will fit you. We never said a preppy had to be skinny, ever, not ever, and I never would. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Did Ralph Lauren ever send you a thank you note? Because pretty much you created his business. We did the book before his business took off. That's my point. Did you get a thank you note? No, not not from anybody. Not from L.L. Bean. Nobody. But Ralph, you know, who embraces that whole Americana, waspy feeling, yeah. should have known better to send you a thank you note. I would have. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Mrs. Birnbach would have said, you should write that man a <laughs> note. You've done everything. I mean, mm. like we said... You know, you're a host, you're a consultant on major lifestyle brands. I mean, the people still go back to the prep well with you. That is what is so weird. I have been summoned by Tommy Hilfiger. I've been summoned by Brooks Brothers. Brooks Brothers filing for bankruptcy. I I know. I know. Heartbreaking. I've been invited to talk to people at J. Crew when that existed. I mean, it is interesting that well will always be there. And I'll tell you why. It is just one of the intrinsically American can do positive ways of being and thinking. It's upbeat. It's sociable. In the preppy world, we like to see one another. We like to drink together. We like to go boating together. We like to hang out. We love to reminisce. We bring all levels of our family together, kids, grandparents, and so on. It's a nice, friendly... It's tradition. Easy, and it's tradition. It's a very American heritage thing. Now, I believe in my heart of hearts that Brooks Brothers will find a way to survive. But it's also like going to Mackinac Island in Michigan for the summer. It's also like going to the Ag Fair on Martha's Vineyard in August. It's enjoying the country. And it's being very American, even if you're a first-generation American, even if you're an immigrant. I... Actually, before this interview, I ordered online a new copy, which you cannot get, of the Preppy Handbook. They're out of print. And I paid, I think it was almost $100 for it. Oh, that's too bad. But just the other night, I reread it. (laughs) And it is terrifying because I realize 
that is my life. And I'm Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. But I go through everything. My son, the name, Mm. figuring out what's a good monogram before they're born. Right. Across the schools. I also realized how many of my friends, well, I mean, I went to Penn and half my friends went to Deerfield and this and that and the other, how much it's still a part of my life. I guess the question is, obviously you didn't realize that it was going to become, especially with our generation, take such hold in creating kind of who we are? Mm. No. And I think in so doing, you know, I already have been very defensive about the money part. And I will say that as people embraced the preppy handbook and the preppy life, there were some misapprehensions about it. One was the money thing. Mm -hmm. And the other is politics. They assume because George H.W. Bush was such an avatar of preppiness that I was a Republican. You know, it's like saying there's only one religion. There's only one political party. The thing that's kind of beautiful about having a preppy aesthetic is that it embraces you whether you're a Bush Republican or you're an Elizabeth Warren Democrat. And there is no understanding, there is no implicit bias one way or the other. And that is important to me, especially now that I think about politics pretty much all the time. But it also, you know, it celebrates not only families and friends and tradition, it celebrates old ideas. You know, sometimes it's nice to not think and just choose the same wallpaper that your mother had. Or sometimes it's nice not to think and decide, you know, I'm going to make pot roast just the way I've always had it. It's incredibly relevant in our world right now. Mm-hmm. I know we only have you for a couple more minutes. What are you working on right now that's exciting you? Well, don't tell because no one knows. Okay, we'll keep it a secret. Uh, yeah, But I am writing something that I hope will be a new book. I'm going to it like at three o'clock this morning. I had to write notes about it. So I'm quite inspired, very excited. You seem very Um, giddy. I'm giddy. You are giddy. Well, I was an English major in college. I love to read. I love to write. But then I stopped writing because I was on TV and on radio and this and that. You were consulting on films. You consulted on I the was dead consult- poets. I mean, you were... Can you believe that? I love that. I think you've got the, one of the most interesting resumes of anyone I've ever met. Oh, thank you. Well, I've been very lucky. Honestly, very, very lucky. And as you know... You're no Chuck Woolery. I, you know... I couldn't believe my tweet yesterday <laughs> did not get more retweeted. It said, seeking retired game show hosts for epidemiological expertise. (laughs) Tuxedos optional, Emmy not required, apply at the White House. I got like seven retweets. That was very, very disappointing. I don't think people also know how funny you are. Right. That may be a secret. That may be a secret. Is that what you want on your tombstone? And top of everything else, she was funny. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. That I would be very flattered by that. I would be very flattered. I would like it to say, nice mother, really tried, funny. 
nice, warm. <laughs> yeah. All the same things we all want. And also, it could say the OG influencer who made not a penny, not a penny, not a thank you note. By the way, not a penny from a red carpet. Are you kidding? I mean, we got paid to do it, but we two things we should have done, two mistakes. Trademarked live from the red carpet and started the first stylist's agency. Oh, my God. Of course you should have. And you would have think with me and my mom, two Jews putting their brains together, we would have thought of one of them. Two Ivy Leaguers, dare I say. You know what? Why don't you just throw salt in the wound? Sorry. It's okay. You know, That's my mother. Okay. Wait, you. I told Blythe, my mother went to Connecticut College with your mother and your aunt. My mom's sister, yes. yes. Barbara. And then Barbara. my mom left there and went to Barnard. Went to Barnard. And I went to Barnard for a year and then went to Brown. Wow. Which was the hippie Ivy League. Oh, yes. Very hippie. Still is. The richest guy on campus wore basically a handy wipe and a pair of jeans. I mean, in the (laughs) 70s, the richer you were, the more desperate you were to hide that fact. Because that was really uncool. Very bruising. Really uncool. I wish we could talk more. I do too. I love you so much. Why aren't we closer friends? Well, we're going to. Why did it take so long? I don't know, but I think this has been, you know, I think we've bonded. Yeah, I think we have bonded. You are, I could talk to you all day. You are amazing. You are hilarious. So intriguing. Oh, you're so nice, all of you. Well, listen, can we do it again? And will somebody send me your addresses for the royal thank you? Of Ooh, course. Yeah. Lisa, I love you. Thank you so much. This has I been one of, one of my favorite group texts. Thanks, everyone. All right. Thank you. Thank you.